From News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB, this is Scott Slade, in-depth from Atlanta's Morning News, addressing the spike in Buckhead crime. Um, What do you say to those who feel afraid to do our daily errands for fear that our cars will be broken into or will be robbed going to the grocery store and to get gas? Um, How Atlanta leadership is responding, especially in Zone 2, the area around Buckhead, Two notable events have happened recently that are worth digging beyond the soundbite. First, that town hall meeting with the mayor and other department heads, including the Atlanta police chief. And then a sit-down with Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard the very next day with WSB's Veronica Waters. Police are telling the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that overall crime in the area that includes Buckhead is down this year. But residents are angry, saying the criminals are becoming more brazen and it's made their once peaceful neighborhoods unlivable. The Zone 2 area where Buckhead sits has seen a 7% drop in all crimes in January and February compared to the same months in 2018. In the past three weeks, Atlanta police have arrested seven people, all repeat offenders, accused of stealing cars or motorcycles from Zone 2. Police say many of Buckhead's crimes are car thefts and burglaries, crimes of opportunity that don't carry as heavy a penalty as violent crimes. Let's start with a candid and thorough presentation from Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields on February 27th at the Atlanta History Center to a standing room only crowd. It's no secret. We, the Atlanta Police Department, we have struggled with crime in, we call it the Zone 2 Buckhead space for the last probably 18 months. Um, And it's, it's gnawed away at us. It's, we take an enormous amount of pride in what we do. And what we, what we started confronting about 18 months ago was everything seemed to revolve around cars, whether it was a stolen car or a car getting broken into, a slider crime. We just found ourselves in this uphill battle. Part of the difficulty is there's so many cars in Buckhead. There's so many parking garages, and they're mobile. So not just are the cars mobile, but what we're finding is that the offenders and the arrestees don't live here. So they're mobile and they're transient, which makes it very difficult to get a bead on who is committing the crime. And then closing it out, what added to the complexity is the fact that these types of cases are not prosecuted. I want you to know that at no point in our mind was it, well, this is a car-related issue, and therefore it's a lower priority? Not at all. We take an enormous amount of pride in keeping the residents and visitors of Atlanta safe. And when we saw what was going on in this space, in our mind, for our command staff, it was a failure. And it wasn't okay. And it wasn't acceptable. We were trying to balance taking care of the Zone 2 space while also being cognizant of all the rest of the city. That is what we face every day. How can we keep people safe? And so we started shifting some folks up here. We put our tactical teams up here. We put our motors unit up here. I'm just telling you, I'm not going to pay attention to the sign. God bless you, but... um, Now, if the mayor says, sit down... (laughs) Well, that's a different story. Carry Um, on. All right. (laughs) We even went so far as we created an auto crimes enforcement unit. We took people and we said, your singular responsibility 
is to target these individuals who are committing crimes that revolve around cars. And we train them in the pit maneuver. We've never done that in the history of the Atlanta Police Department. And what that allows us to do is to stop people who are in stolen vehicles. And previously, that only could occur if Georgia State Patrol assisted us. But we recognize we were being confronted with a different we were in a different space. But the other thing that we saw well in advance was the behavior and the boldness of the criminals was increasing. And when you couple that with the fact that there's a thousand reported guns stolen out of vehicles in Atlanta a year, this for us was very concerning that we were going to start finding ourselves in a space where someone whose car is getting broken into ends up a, victim, a homicide victim. So for us, it was imperative that we double down on our efforts. And we have, we have thrust every imaginable resource up here. We have our teams out here in full force, and it's made a difference. We struggled last year with crime being up double digits. It was sickening. By the end of the year, crime was up only 7%. What I'm proud to say today, two months in, is we are down 5%. All right? Listen, I know that when you're a victim of a crime, when your neighbor's a victim of a crime, you don't give a damn about my numbers. I got it. But I have to measure the effectiveness of our tactics. And the crime rate is the best way to do that. It doesn't mean we're satisfied. It doesn't mean we're done. It means that what we are doing is working, that we are arresting the correct individuals. So what's, what do we do moving forward? The first thing is we are relentless. We are not put giving up on the pressure that we are exerting in this space, not at all. We own the city, the Atlanta Police Department, not the criminals, and we are committed to beating them, this down and getting this correct. Stay with me. The second thing is we have four, roughly 400 vacancies, okay? That didn't happen overnight. Mayor Bottoms didn't create that. That is a culmination of the Atlanta Police Department has been poorly paid for years. We are well below, we have been well below the competitive market rate for cities, comparable cities. So. When you see me get a little defensive for my mayor, it's because she came into office and she immediately gave the Atlanta Police Department the largest pay raise in its history. All right? That is huge because what it is, it's saying public safety is a priority. Public safety is a priority of this administration, and I need us to all believe that and understand that so our energy is going in the right direction. So with the pay increase, what are we seeing? I think immediately what my command staff and what we're seeing is morale is better, and it is playing out in how people are doing their jobs. They're, and they're rested more because they're not having to do all of these extra jobs just to make mortgage payments. It's going to help our recruiting. It takes a while, though, to close that gap. That's the honest answer. Technology for us is huge. The Atlanta Police Foundation, under Dave Wilkinson's leadership, is, has been essential for us. The license plate readers are a godsend. What do we need to do now? 
we need to get them in the parts of the city, the technology in the parts of the city where we see the, the, the crime and the, 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 the lower income areas that is driving the crime in this space. We have to have that be able to bridge the gap between the technological gap that exists between some of our areas. The beat redesign. Heard you loud and clear. So what we did is we outsourced to Georgia Tech and said, please look at the city. Do we have our zones and our beats how they should be for our current staffing numbers? And Georgia Tech came back, and after they had some really smart people, well beyond our skill set, at, at, you know, there's a reason we become police. And <clears throat> they came back and they said, no, you need to right-size this because of the growth and development in zone two, zone two is quite simply too large. We know that. But the biggest thing is it's not even the land mass of zone two, it's you have so much traffic, our travel times are so slow. So we will have, we're, we're changing the coding in our 911 system as we speak. By the middle of March, we hope to be ready and we will be taking two beats off of zone two and shifting them to other zones. Um, what this means, what this effectively means, is that the Zone 2 personnel, and no, we're not going to steal any personnel or cars from Zone 2, that the Zone 2 personnel have a smaller space in which they have to police. This will allow them to have more time on their beats, less travel time, and ultimately, I think, will help create a safer Zone 2. But the last thing, and this is, to me, the most important thing, and why I'm so appreciative you're here, I need your help. I need your help. There is a very real issue of repeat offenders and in this city. And when my folks are going out and they're arresting people 12, 14, 42, 60 times, when we're going down there and we've got someone who is out on bond for murder and they're six-time first offenders or they're getting a signature bond for a violent act, there's a very real problem there. And what I will say to you is you represent power, you represent influence, and you represent the ability to help us change the trajectory of the criminal justice system in Atlanta. We have to close the existing gaps. I have to have... <laughs> I'm using Howard's time, too. Thank you, Councilman Shook. Um, it's you know, when the Atlanta Police Department, you can go online and you can see our 911 calls real time. You can see how long it took us to respond. You can see the reports. And when you fail, you know what I, when we fail, I stand in front of you and I say we failed and we own it. I need the district attorney to show us who is getting prosecuted, who's getting pled out, okay? When cases are adjudicated, that adjudication should be transparent to all of us, particularly law enforcement. What are, what's happening to our cases? We don't know. The magistrate court, they set the bond. I don't know who they are. Some of them, they, I think they like call them substitute magistrates. All we're asking of magistrate court is before you make a decision, if that person should walk out the door, you have the person's criminal history in front of you and the police report. That's it. That's it. 
And then for the, 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 the trials, give us a chance. Give our officers a chance to testify. If we do a shoddy arrest or report, we'll own it. We'll correct it. But this stuff is just, it's just transpiring, and we have no knowledge that it's even occurring. And what I will say is, I realize since we started to exert some of this pressure, I'm getting pushback that they're going to try to find flaws with APD. We'll own that. We'll own that. If I have an officer who doesn't fails to come to court, that'll be the one time they fail to come to court. I will give these judges, they're judges, they have power. Are you telling me you can't call the chief of police and tell me to get someone in court? Come on. So I am asking for your help in us closing these gaps in the criminal justice system so we can have the safest city possible. Thank you. Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields. That very next day on February 28th, Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard sits down one-on-one with WSB's Veronica Waters to talk about the frustration of the community with the revolving door. He heard Chief Shields and others loud and clear and had some ideas on what to do about it. We heard a very impassioned plea from the police chief. And what the police chief uh, asked directly is that uh, some action ought to be taken with respect to defendants being released uh, by Fulton County magistrates. So today, uh, my office is making uh, a significant policy recommendation to the Fulton County criminal justice system. And we are making uh, the recommendation and we're asking for two changes. Uh, one of the changes involves a request that the Superior Court answered on the 5th of March of 2018. Our office had asked that with respect to certain crimes, and these were all um, seven deadly sins, our most serious violent crimes. We asked that they the bonds not be handled by magistrates. And uh, on that date, the Superior Court judges uh, uh, decided that they would issue such an, such an order. So when they did it, however, they limited the order to five specific offenses, and those being rape, murder, aggravated child molestation, aggravated sodomy, and aggravated sexual battery. What are the two that are not covered? Well, and and that's what we're asking today. We're asking them to include an additional seven offenses, and those include armed robbery, kidnapping, home invasion in the first degree, aggravated stalking, motorcycle vehicle hijacking, aircraft hijacking, and we're also asking them to include defendants who are repeat offenders who are charged with arson, aggravated assault, and burglary. Now, that's the first recommendation that we're making. The second recommendation that we're making uh, involves magistrates that are handling bonds wherein the DA's office makes an objection. And this is what we are recommending to our court system, that if a request is made for a magistrate to grant a bond, if the defendant is a repeat offender, if the defendant is charged with a crime of violence, if the defendant commits a sex crimes violation, or if that defendant is currently on bond, 
if the district attorney objects to that bond, we are asking that that case be transferred to a sitting Superior Court judge. It has been my impression talking to people in the community that they are not only concerned with the quality or the quantity of the bonds, but they are concerned with the judicial officer who is granting the bonds. And, uh, and, and many have expressed that they think that the persons who should be overseeing this process should be a Superior Court judge. This is a judge vetted by the community, selected in the community by an election, and it's also somebody who the community can hold accountable. The magistrates, though, are acting at the behest of the criminal justice system's superior court judges, though. They they sort of have this authority to do these kind of cases. Um, isn't I mean, I, the buck stops with the superior court, I understand, but that's sort of their duty. Are we So are we hobbling the magistrates? Are we saying we don't have confidence in these magistrates or what? Well, what I'm saying is, is that uh, the question is not one of confidence. I think the question is one of fact and reality in that some of the many of the bonds that they've granted, that they've been really troublesome under the circumstances. And I'm just asking that when the state objects, then that bond set by the judge ought to be seen as a recommendation. And the final decision ought to be made by a superior court judge Um, in with the letter, and I am sent this letter to our Superior Court judges, I have attached a list of 11 cases that involve defendants that were released by uh, Fulton County Magistrates. And Veronica, the reason I'm doing this is because when you listen to some of the police officers talk about the cases, when we listen to Chief Shields talk about the cases, many citizens are wondering, like, what what is she talking about? Well, for instance, if you look at Defendant number two, and I think that person is on your list, because I think this is a classic example of what the police in our county are talking about. This is a man by the name of Sean Antonio Winfield, who was in the custody of the Fulton County Jail for two days. He was charged with aggravated assault and pimping. In fact, the allegation is that the pimping involved a 17-year-old girl that he not only injured, held her at gunpoint, threatened to kill her if she did not make enough money for him. And the child ran out of the hotel and reported this to authorities. Well, this defendant had 18 prior arrests, and he had also been convicted on a number of felony charges already. Also, at the time that he requested the bond before the Fulton County Magistrate, he was currently on probation. The pretrial services department recommended that he should not be granted a bond. The DA's office objected to it, and he was allowed to sign his own bond in the amount of $20,000. And Veronica, um, that's hard for the public to accept. It is really difficult for the policeman who apprehended this guy to find out that in a matter of two days, he has been allowed to sign his own bond. This has got to stop. 
this is the time to make the change. And so I'm making the recommendation today, hoping that we can see a change in this kind of release policy. By any chance, do we ever know what happened to Mr. Winfield here? Has he stayed out of trouble? Uh, As far as we know, uh, he was released on the 19th of February. Uh, We don't have any report of him being rearrested uh, since that time. So Judge McBurney tells me that in talking to the magistrates, they said, we don't always have a defendant's criminal history in our hands when they come before us for um, with a lawyer seeking bond. You know, we've got this lawyer saying, hey, give this young guy another chance. Um, and even if the DA's office objects to the bond, they don't have the criminal history. Sometimes the ADA might not have the criminal history to show the judge. Um, how is this going to change that part of the equation? Well, Veronica, let me say that, and I'm glad you asked that question. First of all, there's no requirement that the judge has to, at that instance, grant a defendant a bond simply because they don't know about the record. And I think most folks with common sense would say when a guy has 20 prior arrests and he's charged with pimping and pointing a gun at a 17-year-old child— If the judge doesn't have sense enough to wait until they get some additional information, I'm sure most people would agree we don't need that person as a magistrate in the first place. But in the letter that I'm sending to the judges and the police departments, what I am asking the police departments to do is to make sure that they immediately will submit the police reports and any arrest information to the DA's office complaint room immediately so that when the prosecutors appear before the judges, they can present to the court all of the necessary information that would allow the judges to make the decision regarding bond. How do you see this uh, making an immediate impact? Uh, I think it's going to make an immediate impact because when the case goes to a superior court judge, it has been the it, what we've seen in the past. The superior court judges they have examined these cases with a lot more attention, and uh, we hope that we won't have situations like Mr. Winfield occurring in our county. That's what we hope the immediate effect is. One of the other immediate effects we hope is that in some of the cases where the policeman did not provide all of the information to the DA's office. The policemen are making a lot of complaints about those release uh, releases by magistrates. Then I think that this it will say to them, you got to provide the information. And for those who maintain that justice delayed is justice denied, especially for victims, District Attorney Paul Howard says he hears that too. We, we got to continue to work with our partners. And this is one of the things we going to keep talking about is that to look at the example of other jurisdictions. Other jurisdictions are using case processing standards. And what that means is, is that every case should have a shelf life, that if you are charged with a certain offense, then you should know the family and the victim's families. They should know when is that case disposed of. You know, Veronica, this is what I say to people. Uh, Suppose you ordered some food from Uber Eats and you ask them, well, when are you going to deliver the food? And they said, well, it might be any time within the next three months. Would you order the food? Veronica, do you know that when victims ask me right now, hey, Mr. Howard, you know, my son was killed. 
when are you guys going to try that case? Guess what I say? I have no idea. There is not one case in our county that we could honestly say to a victim or a victim's family when that case is going to be heard. That's what the police are saying. They, they're saying that that we, we don't like that. That's what citizens are saying. We want something that's faster. We want it to be sure. We want it to be definite. And when you sentence somebody, the sentence ought to make sense, not putting somebody on probation. And then when the person comes back the second time, we put him on probation again. That's what people said. And I'm just hoping that um, that we ought to listen to people, because as I understand it, we're supposed to be working for them, not for ourselves. We're supposed to be working for them. As of March 8th. A spokesperson for the district attorney's office says Howard and magistrate judges have not met to discuss his proposed recommendations. And Chief Magistrate Judge Cassandra Kirk did not return emails requesting comment by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We always say, we'll follow this and get back to you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Slade, in-depth for Atlanta's morning news on News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB.